0: Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada, talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Workers need unions. At the same time, unions as they exist today are profoundly inadequate organizations for workers to use to defend themselves and fight to improve their conditions within capitalist society. Unions today are bureaucratic workers' organizations, shaped by many rules that workers themselves can't easily change. These include laws and collective agreements that tightly restrict when workers can strike, or sometimes ban strikes altogether, and require the use of a formal grievance and arbitration procedure to resolve disputes between unionized workers and employers over workplace rights. Union constitutions and bylaws are another source of bureaucracy. Within unions, members elected to full-time leadership positions and staff members who work for the union, usually hired, although they're elected from the membership in a few unions, have enormous influence, putting together full-time officials and staff, I call them the officialdom, in just as a shorthand. As a group, the officialdom is a distinct social layer with interests that aren't the same as those of the workers it represents. Now, there are lots of differences within the officialdom in terms of uh, how people approach unionism and their politics and so on, but as a whole, the officialdom needs union institutions to function without much disruption so its members can keep being full-time officials, and ultimately they need bosses and often state officials to deal with them, and they need their salaries paid. So this means that whether officials are right-wingers social democrats or revolutionaries, the officialdom will usually oppose workers doing things that could threaten the union as an institution, like strike in a way that defies the law and could lead to massive fines. And that's a problem since the most effective union tactics, for example, strikes with hard picket lines, sympathy strikes, and unexpected wildcat strikes are all illegal in Canada. So this episode is about whether, given all that, socialists should take jobs working as staffers for unions. And I'm joined on this episode by three socialists with a lot of union experience. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves and briefly tell listeners a bit about your experience with unions. Let's start in the West and move to the East.
1: Okay, well, my name is uh, Gene McGuckin. I'm uh, a past, uh, retired past president of a uh, paper local in Burnaby, British Columbia, a suburb of Vancouver. Um, however, my first... Uh, Connection with unions was when I was a small child and my father was running a uh, newspaper in northern Minnesota. And I recall him coming home after bargaining with six different unions and uh, saying things like, "Damn unions! They think what's theirs is theirs and what's mine is theirs." So that was my uh, my lead off into uh, connections with unions. Several, uh, a couple of decades later, when I was. Um, Trying to figure out what to do for a summer between uh, years at university, um, I suggested my father that I, I rent a motorcycle and wander around the country working as a migrant worker, so I could meet different kinds of people and try to figure out, um, you know, how other people thought about the world. From uh, you know, people that went to boarding school and universities and stuff like that, which was my experience. And he shook his head on the phone and said verbally. Uh, you're going to go out to be a goddamn union organizer. So he wasn't that far off. I uh, eventually wound up being uh, president of and a chair of the bargaining unit at uh, this um, paper recycling mill in Burnaby. I worked there for 28 years. I was um, president of the local for 10 years. I was on the executive and the plant committee to handle grievances and bargaining and stuff like that for 25 years. And I also published... Uh, because I had some experience working in uh, newspapers along the way too, as a reporter, I published uh, for 22 years a local uh, news monthly newsletter, which uh, won me lots of friends and uh, influence in union
0: bureaucracies. Thanks, Gene. Catherine.
2: Hi, my name is uh, Catherine Kuciszczak. I came around to unions actually towards the end of my. Uh, undergrad in university. I got involved in an organizing drive of uh, food workers on campus uh, by Unite Here, and I helped out with that organizing drive as a volunteer shortly after SCIU Local One, which is a healthcare workers local, offered me a union organizer position, which I uh, gladly took at the time. I was working on a sociology undergraduate sociology degree, which I didn't finish. I ended up working for SEIU for six months as a union organizer. It was uh, definitely not a pleasant experience, but I did at that time decide I wanted to be active in unions, just not in a staff position, because I did have such a negative experience. Um, So subsequently, I just through luck, if you will, became a paramedic, accidental luck, I ended up working in Southern Ontario as a paramedic, was hired on in 2010 and have been active with the QP Local that I'm a part of ever since that time. So it's been 11 years now. Uh, for the majority of that time, I have held elected positions the last three years. Uh, I am the president of the local and I have been on a full-time book off. So that makes me part of the union officialdom that we're here to discuss today.
3: I'm Sherry Wolf. I'm speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I come to unions basically through my family. My grandfather and grandmother were proud union members. My grandfather was a founding member of the um, photo engravers local back in in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, and back in the 40s. Um, and a lead shop steward, um, which enabled um, him to retire at the age of 60. And since he'd started working at the age of 10, um, uh, that was uh, uh, told me something about unions. Both of them uh, retired with something that would be unknown to an American today, and that is an actual pension, a real pension, not a 401k plan, something where for the rest of your life you're paid. of your salary, um, unheard of today. And so I I began to have a notion of what unions were um, as a result of that. I, um, however, had never been in one or worked for one. Um, In my working life, uh, prior to the last eight years, I've been a revolutionary socialist active in the International Socialist Organization for decades, um, since the early 80s, and mostly worked on Madison Avenue in advertising, doing whatever stupid, useless job I could do that would require exactly zero brain energy so that I could devote my Entirety of my life to radical politics and organizing and real things that matter to me and pay my bills at the same time and dress the way I wanted to, and um, and eight years ago I was hired on to be an organizer and now I'm the senior organizer of the faculty grad postdoc adjunct union at the State University of New Jersey at Rutgers um, AUPAFT and that's uh, the position I occupy now. But they they hired me on as a red um, knowing knowing what they were getting. Okay, thanks, everyone.
0: So the central question that we're going to talk about today is, should socialists take union staff jobs? Would any of you like to go first?
1: Um, I should clarify that all of the uh, different posts that I held in the union were book-off jobs. I I stayed on the uh, tools and uh, while I was driving uh, mobile equipment in the yard, so to put out the newsletter or to go to meetings or to, Da, 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 i just booked off a day or two days or a week or whatever right but i back and was again under the supervision so i was never a full-timer so um I, you know it's uh, i was offered a job one time my uh, the rep that i had whom i quite liked as an older um austrian fellow and fairly left-wing um uh, called me up one day and said come and have lunch with me in my neighborhood where, you know Metro Vancouver is a fairly sprawled place, not as big as the GTA, but uh, still a fairly sprawled place uh, and not as big as New York City either. Um, anyway, he, uh, we sat down and he said, so I'm going to retire in two years. What are you going to do? I said, do you mean am I going to take your job? And he said, yeah. And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, well, because I don't agree with the uh, union leadership on a myriad of things and I'm not going to let them shut me up. And he said, listen, you know, I was president of the local at the time. He said, listen, you know, you don't you don't have the same politics as your members now. Right. And I said, that's true. But my members can vote me out of office. They can't vote me out of an income. And I'm not allowing putting myself in a position where that can happen. So um, that was my basic orientation. I I should also say I come out of a far left uh, background, too, and the uh, fourth international uh, socialists in uh, Canada. And as a matter of fact, the reason I was working at the paper mill was because it was an assignment um, and it turned to industry assignment. Right. So um, I didn't know it was going to be a 30 year assignment, but that's OK. Um, and uh, anyway, it, it, um, I just was prejudiced against the idea. But I also, over the course of my time, saw some evidence of it, which I'll not dominate the conversation right now, but it'll come up later in the discussion.
2: I can go next. So I think. Depends on what you want to do as a socialist, right? Like if you're looking for a good income, then a union staffer position might be what you're interested in. If you're looking to shift union politics and workers politics to the left, um, then it's probably not the position that you want to be taking, Um, So really, for me, it it depends on on what you want to be doing. Right. Like I have been asked multiple times if I am interested in taking a staff position with CUPE. I have consistently said no. Um, But the benefits that I have is I have a, a good paying job with job security right so i don't have to worry about my income um the difference in income that i would see if i were to take a staff position would be not that Not that significant. Um, I also like the job that I do. So if I am unelected or decide I don't want to hold an elected union position any longer, then I'm happy to go back to the workplace because I love being a paramedic. So a lot of considerations, um, but as well, very cognizant that if I were to take a union staff job, I would be doing the work of the union that is not... Um, my favorite work which is all of the bureaucratic and legal pieces of the union um, which is really not why I got involved in the first place and that would be the focus as well as absolutely like pushing any kind of union activism within a tight legal framework which like you said, David, at the beginning of the episode is not how workers make gains. And so because I don't have those financial pressures, uh, like, like some other, other workers that have taken staff rep jobs or staffer jobs for unions, I can continue to operate in my elected position and try to push things to the left and try to build... Um, You know, worker confidence and worker militancy, things that I would not be able to do to the extent that I can as a in a staff position, because um, you do direct the political direction of the union when you hold an elected position. And that's not something that is afforded to staff. Even though they, they do find ways, like niche places where they can have that influence. Um, but when push comes to shove, they follow directions of those above them.
3: I guess my approach to this question is to respond with two questions. It depends what is the union and what is the expectation of that socialist. And and in that point, you know, my starting position is where Catherine begins, because I think any socialist who goes into being a union staffer um, with the expectation that it's going to be through that union work that your socialist politics is going to have its finest expression, is going to be either either sorely disappointed um, or um, accommodate themselves and their politics and their own uh, definitions of socialism to what the union officialdom and the various leadership of that moment has determined that is. And that's what I actually say. I think it's the latter that happens more often um, than the former. In my experience, with people who stick around and organize and who go into as socialists with that expectation. The other thing, in terms of it depends in what kind of union. I mean, I landed in a very unusual place. I said I was hired on openly as a revolutionary socialist, um, as somebody who's very outspoken on Palestine, as somebody who has been you know, wrote a book on sexuality and socialism and, and has, you know, been active and uh, all sorts of uh, anti-imperialists and different kinds of politics for a long time. Um, they merely needed to Google me. So they knew that this was a known thing, but they also needed a street game. They needed a ground game. And I think that the approach that because I was being hired by people who are entering into the leadership who are leftists themselves, in the professoriate, and here's where it being a higher ed union, in a state that is run by the Democratic Party completely. Um, so it's a blue state, quote unquote. Um, and um, to be honest, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little later on about the Democrats. I've never been asked to knock on a door and make a phone call for a Democrat. I won't. But um, that is not, that is an outlier situation for an American staffer in any union. It has everything to do with the kind of union and the kind of people I represent and the kind of cohort and a rising left within the professoriate and among the adjuncts and the um, and the grad workers and postdocs and them having a much more militant um, view of the world and view of organizing and seeking to have organizational staff that reflect that view with all of the contradictions that we're talking about here, because that does not, I do not live in some of Valhalla Union, where there is no bureaucratic functioning, or the governor of the state, you know, who was a Goldman Sachs executive for twenty-three years, isn't you know fed it in that crap. Um, I, that that is that is that would be a lie. But I think when you have members and who are rankified, the leadership, the elected leadership of the union, actually remain in their working positions. They are not removed from the professoriate. Um, which is a very important distinction, as both Jean and, and Catherine, you know, asserted, has created a different kind of a dynamic in this particular local, in this particular moment of radicalization, in which I have probably what I would consider as a revolutionary too much sway as a staffer. That can be a problem, um, right? Um, we're for rank and power. but in, in having identified a new leadership to then come to the fore. So, you know, when a staffer gets to uh, put their finger on the scale and play an outsized role in in some ways in cultivating a cadre of leaders who are black and brown and younger and women and represent more left positions, that is a kind of a thing that runs against the interests in some ways of socialists at the same time, you know, as rank and file, but at the same time has opened up the doorway and created A sort of vocal leadership that are basically leftists. Um, So it really does depend um, and it's fraught with contradictions and and it's a minefield at times. And and anybody who says differently, I believe, is not really reflecting the reality of union organizing, certainly in North America today. So here's a a question just picking up on that
0: uh, issue about it depends. And that is, should we answer the question differently depending on what kind of staff job we're talking about, um, since clearly being a researcher or an education staffer or a lawyer for a union is not the same as being a, a rep or business agent? Any thoughts about the different kinds of positions within the staff world?
1: I think it definitely does matter, but I had an interesting uh, experience with a um, staffer in the Communications, Energy and Paperworkers Union, a national um, research, he's in, head of the research department at the national office. He came out of the Montreal citizens movement, which was a uh, 1980s, sure, not that, oh, actually it lasted quite a while, didn't it? Anyway, it was a, a, a left-wing um, nationalist uh, municipal party in Montreal. And I sort of re- regrouped a number of, uh, of, which there were no shortage in that city, leftists. Uh, into a municipal party that did some really good stuff over the course of a while. Uh, he his relationship with me was like I would run into him on the street sometimes when he was in town, and he would introduce me to a fellow staffer as, "Oh, this is Gene, a, th- a per- perennial thorn in the side of the leadership," which was sort of a compliment, but also sort of a you know a rebuke. Um, and and he would you know approach me at um, at conventions. To um, talk about this or that uh, resolution or something like that, and then he would say to me, sort of off off the record, "How do you keep on getting elected to come to these things, uh, as though you know you know you're you're so far out in the left field that that da 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 da." But I mean, he would also do things like go into uh, the uh, um, resolutions committee at convention when they were arguing about whether or not one of the resolutions our local had submitted had some nefarious. Uh, purpose behind it. And he would go on there and say, no, these guys are straight up. Was, whatever they say is what they want to do. They're not, they don't have anything hidden. So it, it was interesting. He, on the on one hand, sort of kept his political identity, but he also kind of was shaded by the, his relationship to the fact that he was part of a bureaucracy um, in, in the way that he dealt with me and the way he presented me to other people.
2: So One of the things that I've noticed in terms of different staff positions is that, and again, as Sherry was saying, depending on which union you're talking about, because there's such huge variations of a union's political orientation or a local's political orientation over time and across unions. Um, So that does make a difference. But union organizers, I find, tend to be given a lot more leeway and are a lot less supervised and overseen um, than a business agent position or a lawyer position. So I do feel like there is a bit more freedom there. I I tried to actually reflect on why that might be Um, a union organizer um, is basically the only um, link that those workers have to the union. Right. And because they're not already paying dues and because there is like very, like not much in terms of legal, um, legal constraints that comes around that because they're not yet organized into a union and so the legalities don't necessarily yet apply, Um, there does tend to be a lot less oversight over that type of work. Uh, I've also found, uh, to be honest with you, that workers that, as a group, tend to bring in less dues are um, watched much less closely, and there's much less concern about what happens within those kinds of groupings of workers, um, rather than workers who are better paid, tend to have full-time jobs. Predominantly white men bring in a lot of union dues. and so staff tend to be anything, you know, that uh, raises a flag around what's going on in those kinds of groups of workers. Staff tend to be deployed to pay a lot more attention um, with specific directions, if you will. So I do think it depends. Uh I think I think it depends on the union and but for the most part, like. Even union education, those folks are given a curriculum of what they're supposed to teach. You know, there's very little leeway um, there in terms of being a lawyer. My general experience has been they're legally defending the union, right? Um, So those positions come with quite specific direction. And I don't think that there's very much leeway overall in those types of positions. And certainly with a staff rep position, I mean, it's all about functioning within the legal framework and making sure that that happens very smoothly, right?
3: I agree with Catherine. I think that's absolutely true. I think as an organizer, what I do is very different from like the contract enforcement folks who are working within the narrow confines of the law, which obviously goes against workers. It's the bourgeois law and a bourgeois state. and It's going to be, um, you know, against us. And so they're always trying to find some little nuance or some sort of schniggly detail to go, you know, uh, navigate through that labyrinth to find some way out. That's not what I do. And I think that the reason why it's probably... More possible, again, in certain kinds of unions, like the sort of union that I'm at, to be an out-socialist and... Hold on to your principles and your politics, and actually be respected by workers, and 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 live to whatever degree a person can. Your politics, because you're most in touch with the rank and file. What do I do all day? I mean, you know, I'm I'm literally in in faculty offices, or you know, in the coffee shop, or in the bars, or you know, in their labs, and listening to them about their issues, and so you develop a rapport and a certain camaraderie. And, um, and that has, you know, great, you know, um, I find it very fulfilling, um, frankly, as a, as a job, it's a fulfilling thing. You're able to help people, um, you know, and I don't mean, you know, to get them some benefit. Yeah. Sometimes, but usually it's about bringing people together for some sort of collective solution, um, uh, uh around the boss. It's, there's no easy, easy answers in that, but I think that it's, um, you know, it, it, it provides, again, in some of the better unions, uh, a venue through which somebody can actually be a socialist in a union and not just some sort of um, functionary who's, you know, carrying out the dictates of someone else because there, there has to be. If you're going to be out there and be effective um, on the day-to-day um, with people, then there can't be a high degree of hands-onness, especially in a large union of thousands and thousands of members, which simply wouldn't be possible. You have to have people who can think on their feet and think and are expected to think for themselves and act um, accordingly. And that's, you know, that opens up, obviously, certain opportunities for socialists like me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because from what you've said, Sherry, that the local you work for is led by, you know, pretty unusual Kind of a leadership are uncommon, unfortunately, um, in terms of the approach that they that they take, um, which is very different from working for a national or international union, where so even if you're an, a staff organizer, um, you're probably reporting to a head organizer, and they've got a very distinct ideology about how organizing happens, so on. I, I imagine this may resonate with your experience, Catherine, um, when you were involved as a when you had that staff job that you mentioned at the beginning. Um, So I think that's worth people thinking about in terms of, um, you know, if you're staff, who do you actually report to? Who do you take your orders from at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about um, things that some of the the pressures, I guess, that that socialists and staff jobs face. Um, Any thoughts about that in terms of what kind of pressures people find themselves uh, under to things that they... Have to avoid doing in order to keep their jobs when they work in conventional staff positions. Things that you might have seen
3: happen or that you know about. I can give an example from this week, um, and next week I'll give an example from next week, um, and, and, and that is we our, our union was actively and devotedly um, involved in a struggle, a local fight that pit the union. In community, in coalition with people in the community, in a largely Latinx, um, working class, and poor community with large number of immigrants in New Brunswick, um, which is where one of the main campuses of Rutgers is, is located, against all the powers that be, including the head of the university, but also the governor and you know all the big muckety mucks that run all the big things that muckety mucks run, and even though we were actively involved in this fight and visually Democracy Now! covered this fight, um, we were, you know, out there in front. The minute it had gone against us and there was now a groundbreaking of this cancer institute that swept away a poor Latinx school. As soon as the Democratic governor was there at a groundbreaking, you know, even though the community was out there protesting yesterday, our union was told, stand down, do not stand with the common. We do not want to embarrass the Democratic governor on the heels of him then running for office in which, you know, we will, you know, at least in some formal ways get behind him. Right. So you don't want so it becomes that sort of thing that that I think is very, you know, around issues in particular um, with the Democratic Party. For the United States, becomes you know so fundamental and as to almost not be remarked upon in most unions because it's seen as it's just so normalized um, because they perceive you know public officials as actually that we we have to you know bow down to them and be obsequious to them and that not them delivering uh, for us it's completely um, you know uh, from what it should be so it's cockneying and that and that is you know and that is in fact. You know, and then, of course, the, the the ordinary stuff would be, you know, being asked to go lie to people that if they g- just get out there and vote for this Democrat, that everything will be better. And we know that that has never been the case. Um, so, you know, so things like that are more normal, the kinds of things. But this kind of thing of not embarrassing certain people, treating the social movements and bargaining for a common good as a light switch at times that you turn off and you turn on, uh, turn on and off, um, but don't uh seriously you know pursue them to the logical you know uh, conclusion in, in all the fight and so you, sometimes being fair with the friends and comrades in these struggles, despite what the intention is that's what the outcome is when you have that kind of politics
2: I mean, I think whatever the political trajectory is like what Sherry was talking about at the end of the day, the constraint is that. Um, you're potentially not going to get a paycheck if you don't do what you're told to do. Right. And that's the very material reality of getting orders and following orders of those above you who do make the political decisions and you are in an employer employee relationship to them. To me, that is by far the, the biggest constraint Um, when it comes to expressing your political trajectory in that kind of employer-employee relationship?
1: I can't uh, speak from uh, the experience myself because I've never been in that position as a rep, but I can do two things. One is my wife was a a staff uh, rep for uh, the BC Government Employees Union for uh, 10 or 12 years before she retired. And uh, she reported that in sort of a bleed back to the conversation we we're having before about uh, different um, situations that are better or worse. She found that dependent on who was the leadership of her union uh, during those 10 or 12 years and uh, some leaders, uh, the ones that she worked for at the beginning uh, of that period were um, much more interested in um, mining the abilities and um, commitment of their staff reps and using them to uh, strengthen the union and the people that she worked for towards the end of that period were much more interested in self-aggrandizement and uh, making uh, their um, relations with the local political uh, party uh, etc um, much more interesting so uh, she said that in the latter part of her experience which didn't happen in the beginning at all um, if you were running afoul of the leadership, you were likely to be threatened with getting transferred to another place in the province to, uh, you know, do your job there instead of where you lived with your family and, uh, you know, your friends and stuff like that, or you know, other other kinds of, of penalties and like that. You know, the 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 uh, bargaining units you might be assigned to uh, in terms of difficulty and your own knowledge of their. Uh, their backgrounds and stuff like that. So she found that kind of uh, troublesome. In my own experience, I've noticed an evolution in some of my friends, uh, erstwhile comrades um, in uh, the opposition, um, you know, in the Democratic left opposition within the union movement, people who used to be in the leadership of what we called 30 years ago the Action Caucus, where, you know, at one point uh, in the in 1980s, the Action Caucus, which um, to give them their due, the Communist Party of British Columbia, which was still a fairly uh, strong operation in those days, was uh, the primary leader for it. But at, at times, we would arrive at uh, annual conventions of the BC Federation of Labor with twenty-five or thirty percent of the delegates meeting every afternoon under the flag of the uh, the uh, Action Caucus and doing things. And it was a it made the uh, the conventions quite an interesting uh, uh, tug of war or uh, arm wrestle or whatever you you know, you want to compare it to. Some of the people that were in the leadership of that later were in uh, the leadership of the federation themselves. They won elections, um, first of all, to their union um, affiliates and then to the leadership of the the federation. And uh, somehow their politics changed. I mean, one of them was... uh, somebody who I was a, a friend with and, uh, and owned a cabin with uh, up on an, uh, a mountain nearby here. And one afternoon, we were up there in the uh, wintertime with our kids and tobogganing and stuff like that. Uh, the NDP premier of British Columbia, who was a friend of his, showed up with their family. And we spent the afternoon tobogganing and uh, hanging around and you know doing one thing or another. And over lunch, uh, later in the afternoon... Um, the question of my union, which had not my local, but all of the big um, locals of my union had been on strike. The, the entire paper industry of British Columbia had been on strike for six months at this point. This was back in the late nineties. And uh, the premier vouchsafed in kitchen table talk, I was later told um, that he was going to order them back to work, that he was going to uh, use legislative strike breaking. So I happened to be going to a meeting of our uh, our uh, bargaining caucus with all the other locals in the province the next day. Uh, I wasn't a delegate to a, from our local, but uh, I, I was the president of the local, so I reassigned myself as a delegate. And I went to the, the caucus meeting, and I reported this uh, conversation to the members, right? Which caused a a, pro, a good fooferah, I mean, he wound up not being able to uh, politically do this. But it it lost me the friendship of the guy who hosted the luncheon and the uh, toboggan party and my partner um, at, at the thing, because his, his idea was, you know, oh, we were just having kitchen table talk. I was going, we were talking about legislative strike breaking, right? And anyway, so, I mean, I, I was astonished, and there were a number of other things that happened subsequent to that, you know, around the uh, ferry workers' strike in 2003, the uh, the hospital workers' uh, strike in 2004, which almost led to a general strike, and the teachers' strike in 2005. Um, the Federation leadership played a, a miserable role in all of those things under the same leadership as used to stand up at conventions under the Action Caucus um, uh, banner and uh, demand much better than the uh, then leadership was doing.
0: Catherine.
2: I did just want to give one example that came to my mind while other folks were talking. So um, let's say you're an organizer and you are sent in to organize federal state security forces for your union. um, Workers that either work directly for the RCMP or indirectly for the RCMP. And uh, that goes totally against your, your political understanding of what a union should be. And you refuse to do the organizing, uh, but because it is considered to be a political priority for top national union officials, they just send in some other organizers that are willing to do the work, right? There's there's situations like that that I've that I've heard of, even though I haven't been directly involved in. Um, but a lot of ways to to get around, um, you know those kinds of um, even where, where staff are given um, the leniency to be able to say, no, I don't want to do that type of work, that union officials will just find other staff who, who don't have those kinds of qualms and are willing to do the work.
0: I think it's worth being specific about some of the other you know, techniques that uh, top officials use to keep radical staff in line. Um, one that I'll just mention, and I'd be interested in things that you might want to add to this, are sim- simply the the paycheck, that if people, you know, if people end up uh, in jobs as staffers that are paying much more than they otherwise, you know, have been making or much higher than the other kinds of jobs that are available to them, that can have a, a subtle, you know, influence um, on, on people's decision making because, you know, if the other options that are available to them are just that much, you know, that much lower paying. Um, and in exchange, of course, for that, that high salary comes the expectation that you're going to work very long hours, extremely long hours, um, and that you'll ultimately do what you're told or not do anything that would be you know, not what the higher-ups want done. And I think that I'm, you know, this may seem pretty obvious, but I think for some people who may be new to the labor movement and think that getting involved uh, in working as a staffer is a, is a way to make change in the labor movement or something like that, I think um, it shouldn't be passed over lightly. Other things that people would like to add in terms of some of those kinds of techniques or methods?
2: Well, I think Jean was already referring to this before, which is that recruiting vocal activists from um, within elected positions into staff positions very purposefully to get them to shut up, basically, and to bring them under the direction of the union now as a boss is, is actually a technique that gets used to, um, to get rid of potential opposition, right? Um, whether opposition in the sense that you're concerned that an opponent might unseat you and win your position instead, or whether just to stop the constant um, criticism or you know different pull in a different political direction that that is actually a technique um, that gets used to um, to shut radicals up within unions is to pull them into that relationship of being a staffer where now, yeah, David, you're absolutely right. They're seeing a paycheck that they wouldn't have seen in their previous uh, position, but it's premised on the fact that you will follow orders. But just a
1: brief addendum to that on the basis of my wife's experience, that um, people are also recruited into uh, staff jobs. Um, and this was in the first part of her employment at the BCGEU. Um, by people who were wily about uh, radicals having uh, too much influence among the membership in a whole bunch of different ways uh, and thinking that those radicals might uh, contest for leadership later on. So the uh, leadership then would swoop down and grab those people and say, hey, you know what? You should work for the union. You, You do a lot of good work and stuff like that and get them off the firing line so they didn't have so much credibility for running out against the existing leadership in a later election.
3: As much as the co-optation factor for dissident rank and filers, remember, remains as something that can be dangled out in many locals, less so certainly in a faculty union, because people are not going to jump from being a professor to a union organizer. Alas, we don't make more than that. Um, but uh, or most of them. Um, But um, but the I I think for people looking for meaningful employment in a society in which most employment um, has been so degraded. I mean, you know, I, I said earlier I had worked for many, many years doing a stupid job on Madison Avenue, uh, you know, doing uh, advertising because I could be a proofreader and a copy editor and a copywriter and, you know, I, who cared? Um, I didn't care what I was doing. It didn't matter and it, had, it didn't encroach at all in my world. But um, but those jobs don't exist anymore. Like they're, they're gigs, you know. You can get you know freelance. There's no health care, vacation, holiday, salaried employment like that. They used to even pay my gym membership. Um, yay! Those many years ago in the early two thousands and you know late nineties or whatever. Um, those days are long gone. Like. And there certainly was no meaning to it. I think for a lot of people, having a job of meaning, of purpose, of value, of social importance is not a small thing. And of course, the problem becomes exactly as you, you stated. I mean, the, the the hours, certainly in this pandemic, I'm, I'm about to head off to a month off, which in, never in my life have I had that kind of luxury to have a paid month off until this job um, and never if I needed it so badly. But, um, but I mean, how many weeks did I put in 80 hour weeks, 90 hour weeks, you know, being on call Saturdays, Sundays, late at night, people in duress, people in trauma, people in all sorts of, you know, um, horrible situations. And of course you, you help out because you, you care about them, you know, them. Um, And, uh, and that is, that is something that is a, you know. That's, uh, you know, a lot of people, and unlike working for an NGO, like I am in a unionized staff. I do have a unionized position. I do have very good, you know, terms of employment and insurance, which my wife is covered under, and all of that kind of thing, which could rarely exist for somebody um, right now. So I, I think that those are the, both the financial, but also, if you will, the emotional and sort of um, uh, intellectual um, pleasure and joy of doing something of that like that. You know, can be a way of sort of having endless work um, that can nonetheless be gratifying, um, but also, you know, grating and you know stress-inducing um, to the max. And I
0: think that's uh, it's an important issue, and it, it dovetails with the the rise of what you know, Sarah Jaffe, in her book "Work Won't Love You Back," talks mm-hmm. about in terms of the, the "Do What You Love" work ethic, right? Mm-hmm. That. I think this is actually a, there's a cultural shift. That's uh, I mean it's not you know it's not like night and day, but it's been over time a shift where more and more young people are being told do what you're passionate about, right? Um, find your meaning in your paid employment. That's a particular orientation uh, which is very different than the one you described, Sherry. Um, you know the idea of just doing the job uh, that would allow you to do the meaningful things outside the job, right? Which yes, I'm sure for for Gene, not wanting to ask Gene to date himself, but, uh, you know, there were way more jobs at a certain point that socialists and other radicals could take that made it easier to do that. And I think also there were probably more meaningful uh, opportunities for political involvement in many situations. So it felt very much more uh, compelling to commit to find meaning in these other kinds of things that you'd be doing off the, the clock, right? Um in, in your time away from your paid work. And I think that is part of the landscape now around how young radicals looking to find meaningful things to do with their lives relate to the possibility of union staff jobs.
1: Yeah, yeah just, just another little uh, footnote here. Um, yeah. Even though I was never in a staff position or, or even a temporary staff position, um, definitely the fact that I was a union activist and uh, what was folksly called a shit disturber at those points uh, uh um made it possible for me to work in a paper mill a paper recycling mill for thirty years i mean the uh dri- driving a forklift and a front end loader around a, a yard full of garbage would not have fed my soul very well if I hadn't also been uh you know um, organizing inside the mill organizing inside the union movement, putting out a monthly newsletter um basically um uh, doing political organizing on the job, right? I mean, when I started working, when I first got elected, people knew that I was kind of a pain in the ass to the uh, to the management, but they didn't uh, know anything about my politics. Um, and the first thing I did was acknowledge that I was a socialist um, so that that wouldn't be something that somebody tried to, to blindside me with later. But um, I was... But it was very about six years later i was uh, chuffed one day when some guys in the lunchroom were laughing about something or looking at in the newspaper and uh they said yeah show McGuckin, show McGuckin." and i said what is it And they said nah, nah. and uh it was a cartoon strip of a guy sitting at a bar uh and another guy came over and said what's the problem what, what are you what are you drinking so much for and he turned to the guy and said i'm the last communist in the world <laughs> And they thought I needed to see that. <laughs> and, and they were saying it, and so they were doing it in support of me. So I thought that that was a victory.
0: So I want to throw something out and see what you have to say about this. Um, I think there are some socialists who think um, that essentially that they're different. That, you know, the idea is like, I'm really, I understand the situation I'm going into as a union staffer, but I'm personally really strong and I won't be conservatized mm-hmm. by this. Um, They're pretty, pretty confident that they're different. Any thoughts about that as a kind of orientation to people going into staff positions?
3: Be
1: careful what you wish for.
3: I mean, union staff job, let's also not create the bogeyman that that it's like the Borg and there can be no resistance. Right To me, to the degree that somebody is going to be successful or I'll, I'll stop speaking in abstraction, to the degree that I believe that I am successful, eight years in, to this position, I attribute completely to my continued organizing outside of the workplace um, with comrades and, you know, uh, who are revolutionaries you know, like for this weekend's queer liberation march and the Palestine contingent, putting me in contact with, like, it's that. And, and, and the arguments and, the, and even the humbling reality when you realize that you've overstepped something, you've done something that really kind of violates what you have set out as your own sort of lines in, you know, uh, as you, you know, work with colleagues at work. I, I think that you have to constantly be checked by and, 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 and find ways, if you will, of holding yourself, of being held accountable. Um, and, and that's not an easy thing to do because you have to allow yourself to be humbled. And, and that's not something that any of us, because most of us, if you're going to be an activist and you're going to really be uh, an iconoclast in a society, uh, certainly over these years in the United States of, of downward downturn of of the labor struggle it tends to attract people who are not um wilting flowers you have to you develop if you're going to be any good you have to develop a certain degree of humility about your own contribution and your own um abilities in the face of structures and systems and confines that are well beyond your control and really frankly be a freaking marxist about it you know, they, we really, you know, we make change not in circumstances of our own choosing. And we are part of these larger systems, and you have to find ways of holding yourself in check um, and and being self critical and being around other people who will be critical of you, not for some sort of um, self flagellation game, that's stupid, it, but in order to be better and in order to be effective and in order to stay true. Um, not to some abstraction of the politics, but the real lived politics as they are in the world that you're trying to fight and change. And so, I, I think it's um, it's uh, aging as a socialist is a is a, uh, a, a humbling experience. <laughs> and if it's not, you're probably a bit of an asshole. <laughs> I, I think that the, the word
0: accountability there, you know, which of course can be abused and so on, but I think that's really important. That question about People in staff positions recognizing that no matter how, you know how much personal integrity they have, that they are operating subject to forces they don't control, and so then the question is, what uh, forces, other forces, more positive forces, are you subjected to as well as the the more than, the more negative ones? Um, you know, I think there's a big difference between being, uh, you know, a staffer when there's a you know a militant rank and file that acts as a pressure on someone, um, as opposed to being a staffer in a situation where. That's not the case at all. Um, and so I just think that questioning, that kind of ego um, and, uh, and so on that some people have and not thinking about those broader contexts is really important.
2: I did want to get back to your previous question, David, because I uh, did have a thought about that in terms of the do-what-you-love work ethic. I think one of the things that I've noticed is even have been holding an elected union position it's and I think Sherry already focused on this a bit in terms of the sheer like volume of work that you're dealing with, but also the unions internally are contentious places, right? You hold a union position, you're facing opposition from the employer who has the ability to fire you at the end of the day. You're facing opposition from your own members, um, some of who have right-wing politics and would like to see you go as well, right? You're constantly in a difficult position. It's uncomfortable. Um, You never know if you're going to get reelected or if your life's going to change. You're going back to the workplace. There's a lot of internal petty bullshit that goes on um, because people are vying for positions. It's extremely tiring, right? Like it can just tire a person out. And so I find it's in those circumstances that then looking at a staff position becomes um, a viable and a good alternative because you'll still be able to do the the parts of And I think what Sherry focused on is being rewarding, inherently rewarding work. It's interesting. It's interesting to do bargaining. It's interesting to do grievances. It's interesting to deal with these things as opposed to going back to my job where I'm cleaning a hockey arena, right? But to get rid of these constant political pressures, I'm just going to move into the staff position. I'm just going to focus on that part of the union work without all of these other um, distractions and stressors, right? And I think I've seen people make the jump with those kinds of considerations. Um, of course, you're walking into a situation where you're now facing new constraints and different constraints than, than what you were subjected to before. And <clears throat> I do think that um, staff work like insane hours, right? It is a position where, um, and now it's your permanent position, right? So you can't just walk away from that. And I think that's that's also one of the things that I always consider is, you know, at the end of the day, I could just give two weeks notice to my employer and go back and do my 42 hours a week and just be fine. I'll have the exact same paycheck. But if I were to move into a staff position, I don't have that out anymore. Right. And I'm looking at working 89 hour weeks um, with no way out for until I, I retire. Right. So I did want to just uh, go back to that question. Thanks. Yeah.
0: So my fellow uh, editor of Midnight Sun magazine, Daniel Sarah Karasik, um said, you know, in thinking about this question that we've been talking about, that uh, in their words, the need to find decent-paying work that isn't entirely hateful in a brutal job market plays a huge role. That uh, was their words in in why socialists take union staff jobs. And so I'm thinking about what Daniel Sarah said and some of the socialists who I know um, and respect who work in staff positions. I might be thinking, and they might be saying, "Well, some of these people that I can think of, um, you know, I agree with everything that you've been saying, but I needed a job that paid more than poverty wages and and had benefits. Um, and you know." Any any thoughts about what kind of things we should say in response to that to that challenge? Because I know sometimes people question even the validity of asking the question, should socialists take staff jobs? Because they think it is a kind of a personal attack on people, which is certainly obviously not the spirit in which we've been discussing it. I think we've been discussing it from a perspective of you know what you know, a socialist works um, and in terms of trying to carry out the work that we want to do and also caring about the, the lives of the people uh, who have these political commitments. So anything you'd like to say about that in response to that kind of challenge?
3: Well, isn't any job, uh, I mean, nobody, no, no socialists are going to argue um, to themselves or to any of their comrades, go take this, you know, the worst paid job you can find because um, there's some sort of nobility in getting crappy pay and no benefits. Um, what are the You know, what are the clean, the the clean jobs? What are the noble jobs out there? Um, I'm I'm a little, I'm a little bit, uh, I I understand the question, but I also think that it sort of presumes uh, something, some option that is um, more beneficent, uh, you know, toward, you know, our, aspirations as socialists that exists out there, virtually all of paid work is going to involve people doing something more compromising um, about their politics, right? Because people are not paid to be, until we live in a world in which revolutionaries are paid to be revolutionaries, and then I'm not sure what that world would be, um, uh, right, people aren't paid to be revolutionary socialists. Um, they're paid to do some sort of work under capitalism. So I think that, which doesn't mean that all jobs are equal and anything you do doesn't matter. Don't um, get me wrong. But I, I, yes, do I get, make more money doing this than I made as a proofreader and a copy editor? And is it more reliable and is it under better conditions? There's absolutely zero question about it. There, I, I, I absolutely do. And at the age of 48, when I did take this job, after decades of being um, uh, very poorly paid, um, it had sort of um, come upon me that at some point I was probably not going to work to death and I probably want to stop working and not be an impoverished person and then I should get a job that actually paid me and what do I know how to do that is still um, capable of making an income, it hadn't even occurred to me, frankly, to be a union organizer until I, they came to me and asked me um, to to uh, apply for the job. Um, but it's but I do think you know when you compare it to what else is anybody doing? Um, what are the clean? You know what? Are, what are the socialist jobs? They're 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 really just you know we we don't live in that world. Um, And there isn't even, frankly, the flexibility that workers had in the 70s um, or even in the 80s where you could go and be a little bit footloose and fancy free as a militant in this workplace get canned because you were you know, outspoken and move on to another workplace. Um, you know, I did that. I was, you know, did that and get, you know, tried to unionize and organize my coworkers. Yes. Even in white collar, you know, advertising the late 1980s and early nineties, you know? Um, and I knew I could move from one job to the other. And, you know, I was always going to make a pretty crappy wage that so just afford my little apartment in the East village on, you know, uh, whatever. And, uh, and, and one or two weeks off a year, I, I, that, that, That's, you know, I I think we have to question um, the question in some ways because it presumes a certain naive um, notion about what is the nature of labor um, under capitalism and what are the options that individuals have for sort of pleasant, uncompromising jobs. When I was a proofreader, after all, what was I proofreading? Stuff for Citibank and and IBM and Sheraton Hotels and Benson and Hedges cigarettes. I don't defend any of them, Um, but it was a wage.
2: I think in part, it also speaks to the weakness of organized labor and that where you see that there are no prospects for the rest of your working life to materially improve your conditions uh, through rank and file organizing and that that is not on the horizon, you turn to yourself and say, okay, given that this is the reality I foresee uh, for the next 20 years, and I have 20, 30 years left in my working life, right? Do I actually want to work? poverty wages with no job security for those 20, 30 years, knowing that we're not in a position where we're going to make any material gains resulting in material gains for me. And within that context, an individual solution of moving into a staff position becomes very reasonable and very, like it's understandable why people do it, right? And I think that's where I started off with saying, I'm in a privileged position where I make a good wage, and so I don't have to worry about poverty and so the decisions that I get to make um you know I, I have that freedom to not move into a staff position, but I think we need to think back to like what actually are the realities, the material realities of Gaining improvements collectively in this moment in time, and frankly, like they're not really there. And so, within that context, of course, people are going to take staff positions in order to improve their own material reality.
1: Yeah, I uh, generally um, advise people that are starting to politicize and that are uh, getting themselves into situations that are, um, frankly, not very good for them and health wise and stuff. I, I, I say to them, you know. The first responsibility of every revolutionary is to maintain themselves in good fighting shape so if that means that you have to retire from the front and rest every once in a while retire from the front and rest because that's your responsibility but also in terms of this question it's another that depends right i mean when i got the job in the paper mill in 1979 i i was um you know, I was supposed my life trajectory is supposed to be completely different. When I when I went and uh, uh, met up with some old schoolmates uh, 10, 12 years later, and I told them I'd been working in a paper mill for a decade and a half, one of them said, is this the beginning of a Fred Flintstone joke? And the other one, because we were Catholics, said, oh, my God, you've lived the gospel. And I went, no, no, actually, you're both wrong. It was a political assignment. Um, and it was a political assignment in the context of a, of a program that was being carried out by hundreds of people across the country to try and accomplish something. So, in that case, the question of whether or not you were in, you know, going to have, go and get a job that was fulfilling and paid you a decent wage and stuff like that was in a completely different context than just your own self, uh, you know, looking after yourself. Um, now, you know, it's altogether likely, well, possible anyway. That after I had been working there for four or five years in the political organizations that had um, uh, formed this uh, campaign and that I'd been acting on behalf of, if they had stayed in existence but they blew apart and it became much smaller and less effective organizations, it's possible that I would have left. But it was 1983 and unemployment like, became incredibly uh, problematic across uh, the country and I had seniority. So I stayed there for another three or four years and, uh, you know, wound up running for the leadership of the union and then being able to, you know, have some power to transform my own circumstances. So, I mean, yeah, it depends. I mean, if you're on your own, regardless of whether you're a good socialist or a good, um, you know, first off, you know, preserve yourself and keep yourself in good fighting shape. If not, then there's a whole other bunch of uh, calculus that goes into it.
0: So another maybe a question we could perhaps wrap up with um, would be for people who do recognize the potential power of unions and really want to make a commitment to to building that uh, even in the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves now, um, what's the alternative to the staff route for people who who want to make that kind of commitment and involvement what what would you say to, to people who uh, are thinking about those kinds of options?
3: Good question. I am asked it sometimes, and I would generally tell people, find yourself a public sector unionized job that you can see yourself doing for decades to come. And, um, you know, and find comrades or create comrades around you in that workspace because, um, you know, it, people who are going into with that perspective are coming out of very often student organizing politics or community organizing politics, and they think that union organizing is similar, and it's not. It, it, it has very little to do with that, right? In community or political social spaces, you're coming together with people who've made a conscious decision to come together around the fight against U.S. imperialism or for Palestine or indigenous water rights or whatever it is that the social movement is about. That's you know, in a union, you happen to be in the same workplace, you know? And that, as we know, um, is a really a, a world of difference. So you have to find something that you, you won't find detestable, that you think that you can Live with in this country, at least in the United States, you're generally speaking, if you're talking about unions, uh, a public sector job um, and often for people with some education, you're talking about something in either education or healthcare, um, whether it's K through 12 or higher ed or, you know, nursing or whatever. Um, So I think that, you know, those are, you know, it's not surprising that that's where, you know, also we're seeing a concentration of a sort of militant minority of socialists who are, you know, playing an active role in agitating among their colleagues and their coworkers, um, that these are places that folks um, have landed because there's so few um, places that are palatable um, to those of us who are socialists. And if I were 30 years younger today, uh, if I, you know, if I were 26 years old right now, I would, um, I would suck it up and continue. And, uh, with being a teacher, I walked away from that some years ago. Um, I would have stayed and done that, but that was not, you know, long going far away. Um, didn't feel like an option, um, in New York city at the time. So, but that's what I would do. And
2: I think that that now I'm hearing Sherry talk about this, that that was probably the advice that somebody gave me. And that's, that's exactly what I ended up doing um, in the, in the late two thousands. Right. I think my advice would be um, it's not the easy route. It it is certainly a much more difficult route, but um, think about what type of employment you could potentially do for the rest of your working career. And, you know, link that with uh, prospects for either entering what's already a unionized workplace, which is frequently the public sector, or a workplace that isn't unionized, but that you feel um, could potentially be unionized and that you could put your efforts towards building that as a rank and file uh, worker within the workplace. But just to say, like, if folks are going into that, you go into that with eyes wide open, right? It is very challenging. And so within within that kind of context of the uncertainty of, okay, you're going to go into a position, but you don't know if you're going to like the work, you don't know what kind of union you're going to find in that workplace or whether you're going to be successful in organizing a union, um, The the reality of learning how to navigate union structures if there already is a union in place. All of those are are huge uncertainties, right? Um, so, within the context of having that kind of conversation and giving that type of advice to to folks that are younger and that are looking to figure out how um, they can get involved in union spaces, like the idea of taking a, a staffer job, which you can get into within you know a few months, that becomes a much easier route to. Uh, to take to do that kind of work, right? Um, having said that, I, I would advise people to think about um, how you can move into a rank-and-file position where um, as difficult and as it is and the challenges that you will face um, over the course of your life, you can have an impact um, and try to build worker power uh, within the workplace.
1: Well, I think, as I was saying, I think in the wake of the uh, the IPCC leaked report in the last couple of days, I'm uh, inclined to start telling my son and other people his age um, that what they should be doing is learning how to build houses and, and uh, you know, till fields uh, and grow their own food and, uh, you know, get themselves ha- safe from uh, the cataclysm that seems to be barreling down on us. I know that's not part of this conversation, but... In, that's my honest answer to where we are right now. And, uh, you know, certainly the idea of trying to do something within the union movement and within the workers movement, beyond the union movement, uh, is something that I spend a great deal of time at least thinking about and talking to other people about. But um, I don't know if I'd be advising people to get involved in uh, a full-time staff job at this point. as one of the ways to deal with the, uh, with the reality that's coming towards us.
0: Is there anything that we haven't covered um, that you would like to throw into the conversation before we wrap up?
2: I just think there's been a couple of things that have been said that relate back to my previous point that I thought were actually interesting, which is just like understanding you're in it for the long haul. Right, and the objective conditions are what the objective conditions are, and you can't jump over those. Right, like I think Sherry focused on that. Like, and also, so there's only so much that you can do in any given moment, given the entire situation around you. Right, and so when when we're talking about entering into uh, like already a unionized workplace or trying to organize a workplace, like folks also just have to understand that like. There is a limit on what you'll be able to accomplish based on the objective conditions that that we find ourselves in, and that present themselves in, in specific workplaces. And so that idea, also of uh, that Jean was speaking about, of taking care of yourself and understanding there are going to be times when like you just need to step back and like give yourself a rest because we're here for the long haul, right? And so recognizing those limitations and still taking care of yourself to be able to do that uh, work longer term, I think is really, really important to um, to to just honestly tell to folks when when they're young and in trying to make these types of decisions.
3: I guess I would only add to that. And I I really agree with, you know, what Catherine said is that, you know, um, work is work and it's not the limitations of. Your contribution as a socialist in this world, and uh, and most of the most most of the most meaningful contributions you make politically are likely to exist um, for most people outside of their workplace um, until things are at a much higher level of uh, of resistance. Um, you know, unions, after all, exist to renegotiate the terms of exploitation, not to bring down capitalism. And if our goal is to bring down capitalism, then I think we have to have our sights set, set much higher than staffer positions, or even for that matter, um, merely as rank and file um, activists inside of unions. We have to have a bigger politics and bigger struggles that we are invested in beyond the workplace. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much. I think this has been a really great conversation. Well, thank you, David, for bringing us together. This has been a helpful conversation and, and it's lovely to meet comrades. Yes,
1: indeed. Yes. Thanks for that, David. It's great to
2: meet you, Catherine and, uh, and uh, Carrie. Likewise, and, and yes, of course, thank you, David, for, for bringing us all together. And um, yeah, it was great to meet you folks.
0: That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.